Hi, I'm Chris Farrell, an economics and finance author and journalist. And I'm Twyla Dang. I'm an entrepreneur and a podcaster. The point of this podcast is simple. There's a misconception about people with low and unstable incomes. We think they don't know how to manage money. But they do. People and families with low and unstable incomes are often creative and collaborative with their finances. We'll show you that community is the best investment a person can make. This is Small Change, money stories from the neighborhood. Society would have you thinking that all assets are financial. This is Tanya Brinston. She's a financial educator, chef, homeowner, and soon-to-be business owner. You'll hear more from her later. But what you should know right now is that she changed the direction of this podcast with that one single sentence. This was a podcast about financial literacy, and it still is, but the initial approach was flawed. We thought we had to teach individuals how to be smarter with their money. We did, and I came in with a concern about accidentally talking down to individuals with low and unstable incomes as a part of the process. Now, that was a valid concern, no desire to do that. But were we taking too narrow of an approach? Um, We thought we weren't until we talked to Tanya. My name is Tanya Brinston, and I'm a career coach here at Twin Cities Rise. I'm also a financial educator. Tanya is one of the first people we spoke to while researching this podcast. In our initial conversation with her, she introduced us to the term personal assets. Her insight shifted our educational approach so dramatically that we had to revisit it during the formal interview. Well, as a homeowner, I have personal assets. I have a friend that's a plumber. I have one that's an electrician. I have one that's a roofer. Those are personal assets to me versus if I call a company or somebody else that's probably going to charge me three or four times as much. And these people, my personal assets, they do good quality work. They either own their own business or they're in the union doing the type of work that they do. And so the interpersonal asset is my education. No one can take that from you, whether it be my culinary skills, my education around financial education. I often tell people, your neighbors are also personal assets. I have a neighbor that has a garden. He knows I like green tomatoes. So him and his wife came over the other day and they were like, come and get whatever you want. You don't even have to knock on the door. That's an asset. When they go out of town, I might watch their dog for them. So those are assets and they have nothing to do with finances. And is that part of your network? Yes. Personal assets, interpersonal assets. And... These personal assets lower your cost of living. Absolutely. Not lower your cost, of li- your cost of living, not the quality of your life, but they lower your expenses. Absolutely. I haven't been to a beauty shop in over 20 years. I have a girlfriend that does hair at her house. And I have inquired about what it would cost in local shops to get what she does. And it's like three times more the cost of what she charges me. And so with that being said, I refer other clients over to her. So we're building that social growth, you know. So individuals using skills and talents they have to support each other, building social capital by creating connections. 
So is social capital mostly the ability to interact with people or is it the ability to, within that network, sort of leverage things that you know how to do versus things that they know how to do? Absolutely. I think it's a little bit of both because without it, I mean, if you're not building that network with like-minded people in wherever it is you're trying to go with your finances, you have to grow that. Social capital is used to cultivate a group of people that you can trust and rely on. It seems like a new concept, but it actually has deep community roots in our shared past. Tanya explains it all to us. Does the village still matter when you're thinking about money and people are thinking about money? Does the village matter? It matters, but the, the, the outcomes and the demographics of that have changed substantially from... Now I'm telling my age, the late 60s to early 70s when I was growing up, when everybody had a hand in raising the kids, being a part of their education. I had one of the best elementary school bus drivers in the world, Dan Dan Underbaki. And you still remember his name? Well, he lived up the street from us, and... He ultimately ended up marrying one of my my classmates' mom. And, I mean, he was amazing. He would play trivia with us on the school bus, this side of the bus against that side. And everybody got a piece of candy when they got off the bus, but whichever side won, they get off the bus first. (laughs) He would take us trick-or-treating. He would go sledding. His His mom would... Um, bake us chocolate chip cookies, and when we go, he would take us sliding, sledding in the wintertime over at the Highland Park Water Towers. Just an amazing all-around guy. I'll never forget that. And so going back to the village, those type of interactions with community members, that's what the village is about. Because here I am, well, I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but here I am at this ripe old age, and I still remember that like it was yesterday. So it was real impactful in my life that he did that. Tanya's bus driver, Dan Underbaki, made his community a better place to live by going beyond his role of driving a bus. He developed relationships that made the neighborhood stronger. And as you know, these are time-honored traditions that we somehow forget about or dismiss when talking about money. We lose financially, and we lose the benefits of these community connections. This is Tandy Blom. My name is Tandy Blom, and I'm a family child care provider. We spoke to her in her backyard in St. Paul. Tandy told us a remarkable story about the power of community, where even strangers will help out when needed. I didn't know a lot about home ownership. I just knew that I was approved and... This is how much the bills cost, and and I had everything in line. But when I had a repair that needed to be done, I was kind of in a position where I didn't know where the money was going to come from. And so being a single single mom, calling repair guys, it's not actually easy. Someone will tell you the price is like super duper inflated, you know, for a a water heater. That's what it was. A water heater install. Um, That'll be $8,000. And I was just like, I don't know where I'm going to find $8,000. And so I called another place. Well, 
that'll be 5000 And I'm just like, for a water heater? And that I saw in, in the Menards booklet for like $200? And so I just, I lost it. I cried buckets. And at the time, there were crews, work crews outside, like working on the water main. And I just, I asked him, so what do you do? And he gave me a number to someone he knew. He charged me the price of the water heater and $100 that I could pay. He split it up. You know, he said, I'll come back in two weeks. And I just, I cried even more because <laughs> I was so grateful. Person. Yeah. Yes. Tandy's chance meeting saved her a lot of money, but it also helped her find someone she can trust. That's true. And trust is important to Matt Grasky, owner of Cadence Records and Coffee Shop. He sees the value of applying personal assets to business. He worked within a network of trusted small businesses in his St. Paul neighborhood to open the shop on a shoestring budget. I think it's it's so important to engage with people and you learn and become friends and all of a sudden it turns out that one of your customers has a, a need for um, tables at their restaurant up the street. Well, if you have a skill to do that, you find a way to make it happen and, and trade and grow and you benefit as a community. So have you done that? Of all sorts of crazy things, yeah. Such as? I built a slew of carpentry hobby stuff I've really gotten into since we started our business. And that was primarily out of, of one, um, all the tables, including that we're sitting at, um, were a fantastic gift, 35 free pallets from the, from the hardware store, two blocks down. So if that kind of explains the spirit of our business in general, we are like 97% DIY bootstrapping type people uh, to pull stuff together, but but it, go, it goes a really long way. Matt goes on to tell us how these small business owners use their personal assets to support each other. And this supports building relationships. These relationships have become a driver of community and business. Be it um, us hosting community events here, we've done um, lots of benefit events, lots of meetings, poetry where where, you know what I mean, like cover charge goes to, to a cause and things like that. Oh, it goes, it goes it's on like and these, on. It's like these nice wooden tables that we're sitting at. And I, what are they? Uh, what's that, like a yard by a yard? Um, so you helped another business get its tables that it's needed? Oh, definitely. And it's so fun to kind of, you have to build sort of maybe related to business, but some, some aspect of critical mass in your neighborhood with other businesses. So like, yes, we, we go in when we close and have drinks at neighborhood restaurants. They come in for coffee on weekend mornings before they're starting their, their shifts, prepping food and opening for breakfast and lunch. Like there has to be synergy and that just turns into further, I don't know, good community growth. But it also lowers your costs. To some extent it, it can but there's obviously a trade-off with that because um, it may lower your costs, but uh, it definitely ups your time involved with things. So there's no doubt about that. That's a trade-off, but it's fine. You're comfortable with that trade-off. And that's an interesting because time and money, that's always an important trade-off. Well, you can always make more money, but you can't get your time back. Matt shared some advice on using personal assets to start a business. And honestly... We thought it was good advice for any project you would like to do. And then if someone said to this young person, well, you don't have any money, and you were sitting 
next to this young person? How would you respond to the skeptic? I think there's ways to overcome that with with time, efforts, energy, community, you know, organizing around projects. Ask your neighbors. Maybe they're really handy with a drill. Maybe they're really good at painting. Uh, maybe your neighbor is an accountant who, you know, you can partner with. There's so many options for people. And in today's internet age, where you can have that, again, to just harken back, you can have that convenient at home for products. Like, it's far better, and it just raises the human spirit. We'll be back after the break. Small Change is supported by Thrivent through generous support from the Thrivent Foundation. Thrivent is driven by a higher purpose to help people achieve financial clarity and to make the most of all they've been given. Small Change is also supported in part by the McKnight Foundation, which works to advance a more just, creative, and abundant future where people and planet thrive. Learn more at mcknight.org. Welcome back to Small Change. Personal assets are more than just a good use of your talents or skills. They're often deeply creative and innovative ways to solve money problems. That's true, especially for people with lower or unstable incomes. Bo Tarrarabe is the executive director of the Coalition of Asian American Leaders, a social justice organization in St. Paul. So we're here also to talk about money. Right. And how, you know, and sort of the... One of the theses that we're working with right. is there's this, there's this sort of standard view that people don't have much money. Um, if they were just smart with their money, they would have money. And our thesis is people don't have much money actually are pretty smart with their money because they have to know where it's going. And I'm curious, what is your reaction to that thesis? Yeah. I think that's true, right? Sometimes we tend to think about uh, innovation as coming from those who are most educated or those who have the most privilege to maybe spend a lot of time theorizing and thinking when actually actually it's being done by the people who have the least, right? Um, because they, if you have uh, just enough or barely enough or not enough, you have to be creative, right? You have to know where every pent, <laughs> every cent is going. You have to know who it's coming from, where it's coming from. And, um, and so, you know, from my own experience, I can say that that's true. People are very, very creative and they understand, uh, what it is to both understand exactly um, where every cent is, but also where to get it, right? And I think that um, they may not then have enough to really maximize <laughs> and to build uh, wealth and things. But I think that people who have the lease are uh, sometimes the most innovative. It's important to say that personal assets aren't always highly specialized skills. They can be things that we do in the everyday. We all have something to offer. That's a lesson Bo learned from her childhood. I came as a refugee child uh, with my family post the secret wars in Laos. And so uh, we had very little. We came with two plastic bags and nothing more. And so we were very much that family, right? <laughs> we landed in America and we had nothing. And we had to both understand uh 
how much was available to help us from the public assistance, because that's what we were reliant on first, right? But if we wanted to buy a car, for example, we had to figure out, oh, you know, public assistance is not enough to live, let alone to uh, accumulate enough to buy anything. And so, you know, we started to, in the early mornings before school, my mom would wake us up and we would go into the alleys of Chicago and, you know, go dumpster diving for cans, right? So, you know, those were like the ways that she knew Oh, there's something that it, that I can find uh, to make money, right? Technically, you were supposed to report everything that ev- you know every other sort of cash inflow that your family was getting, but she didn't report that, right? <laughs> because um, that was her way of both finding extra money, um, but to buy the things that she thought we needed as a family, but also to be able to send back to her family because we had family members who were left in the refugee camps in Thailand and things like that. So just for somebody who, you know, like my mother who spoke no English when she came, her farming skills became, you know, irrelevant in Chicago because we were not, (laughs) we were not resettled, resettled in an area where she could farm. But she quickly saw her neighbors and saw what they were doing. And then other people said, oh, you know, you can make money from picking cans and selling. And then then that's what she did, right? So I think just that people have the ability to adapt, but also they understand the limitations of, you know, how much uh, public assistance could help with. Uh, she understood um, certain rules about it, but she also chose to say, you know, I really need to do this to protect and build my family, right? So, and she utilized all of us, her little assets. <laughs> so, and how many assets? Uh, five. So there's uh, five of us. <laughs> this is Va Meng Ta. My name is Va Meng Ta. I am the executive director of ADA, which is short for Asian Economic Development Association. The organization supports Asian American entrepreneurs and is the force behind the creation of the Little Mekon Cultural District, a collection of Southeast Asian small businesses on University Avenue. His commitment to this work was shaped by watching and working with his mother as she used her sewing skills to support the family and eventually start a business. I mean, she she came to the U.S. with just traditional needlework skills, and she was able to use that and transfer that into a business, for example. So that's that's an asset that an example of an asset that we have everywhere in our communities. And it just, I think it's just a matter of how we see these things and how we prioritize and how we lift these up as um, ways to really provide more economic opportunities for folks. When we look at people with low and unstable incomes and we look at where they live, we make value judgments. We decide that they have to overcome their circumstances. We don't see the strengths. We don't see the potential. We don't see that personal assets also add up into something much bigger for the community. It's, it's often, I think, uh, easy for people to look at low-income communities as areas of deficits, you know, and, 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 you know, and not as assets. And so we want to turn that around and say, okay, there's definitely, you know, uh, weaknesses, but what are the inherent strengths of these communities? 
It's like Tonya said, society will have you thinking that financial assets are the only assets that have value. That isn't true. Yes, money matters. Of course it matters. But it isn't the only thing that matters. We started out thinking we had to share ways to manage money. What we learned was that we needed to share the ways that individuals invest in themselves and invest in their communities. One small change you can make today is to figure out what your personal assets are. What are your skills? What are you good at? What talents do your friends and family have? And how can you combine these things to help yourself and each other? Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Minnesota Public Radio and American Public Media. Small change would not have been possible without the work of many people, including... Executive producer, Stephanie Curtis. Producers, Chris Farrell, Twyla Dang, and Veronica Rodriguez. Editor, Brittany Arneson. Original music by Dexter Wolf. You can find other Small Change episodes and find resources for more information about money by going to our website, smallchangestories.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Pinterest. A special thank you to the Thriven Foundation and the McKnight Foundation for their generous support.